it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called Season 4 of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Season premiere, Life. Can't say this podcast will last forever because that's a mighty long time, but I'm here to tell you, there's something else. Being unbothered. Unbothered is a world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun, day or night. So when you call up that shrink wherever you live, you know the one. Dr. Tito's, Dr. Casamigos, Dr. Rose. But instead of asking them how much of your time is left, ask them how much of your mind, baby? Because in this unbothered life, things are much harder than in the afterworld. In this life, you can tell people, fuck it, I'm bothered. Y'all know y'all miss my goofy ass. <laughs> and by the way, if you don't recognize where I got that introduction, please get your life. But I'll be nice and I'll give you a hint. I am so glad to be back with you all. So much has happened this summer. I have so much to share with you all, much of which you'll find out throughout the course of this season because I have collected a lot more stories for I have a story to tell. Now, even though there has been so much going on in the news, monkeypox, the former president having the feds run through his shit, Beyonce wrecking our lives in the best way possible by dropping the album of the year. A preacher getting robbed during the middle of his sermon. And I'm putting robbed in air quotes because that shit looked like an insurance job. But I digress because I'm here to talk about me. And that is why the word of the week for this season four premiere episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered is openness. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh? Yeah. Now, I believe in the course of any given year, we go through seasons, plural, of our lives. And certainly there are periods where a specific season could last for years. And while I think I've steadily been in a season of grind since leaving ESPN in 2018, there's a new season latching onto my life this very moment. This is my season of transparency and vulnerability. Now, one of the things that happened during the hiatus is that I revealed the date my memoir drops, which also included a cover reveal. On October 25th, people are going to find out parts of my life that they never knew. In my memoir, I'm exposing a lot of childhood trauma, generational trauma, fears, doubts, grievances, all of it. I'm revealing things about life that I never thought I'd tell most people and certainly didn't envision it being put out there for public discourse. And by the way, you can pre-order the book now wherever you purchase your books. Anyway, I'll be honest, I'm a little scared. I don't know how people will react to this memoir. I've already gotten a taste of how complicated things could be because in late June, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic disclosing that I once had an abortion, something that I go into detail about in my memoir. For years, the only people that knew that was my boyfriend at the time, my best friend, Kelly, 
you know, I had this abortion when I was 26 and I didn't tell my mother until sometime in my late 30s. My grandmother, who passed in 2010, died not knowing. My father found out when he read the piece in The Atlantic. Over the next several months, people are going to find out very personal things about me and my family. And as much as I've tried to brace myself for the kinds of questions that will be asked, the kind of judgment I may potentially face, there is part of me that isn't so sure if I'm completely ready to handle all of this. I mean, I'm accustomed to being asked about current events, politics, culture, sports. I don't know if I'm ready to be asked questions about that time I was almost raped when I was 11 or 12 years old. So I have only one choice when it comes to handling these fears and doubts. Lean into them hard. Lean into feeling exposed and raw and vulnerable. And I could not think of a better space to do that than this one. So I plan to get even more personal and honest with you this season. Y'all getting even more me. Isn't that wonderful? Openness. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is a mega star and the former title holder of People's Sexiest Man Alive. Although I think most women would agree that his Sexiest Man Alive title is forever. He is a tremendous actor who has played some iconic characters. John Luther, Hemdall from the Thor Marvel comic franchise, Bloodsport and Suicide Squad, and one of the best television characters of all time, somebody who graded on every single nerve I had, somebody who was just diabolical, and that is Stringer Bell. I think you all probably know who I'm talking about, but let me also add, he's got a new movie in theaters right now called Beast. I saw it. It is quite the thrill ride, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Idris Elba. So Idris, given your musical background, your musical history, the fact that you are very much a working DJ, I have to ask you what I think is the question of 2022. What did you think of Beyonce's Renaissance album? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, look, um, I'm going to be really honest and probably a little bit disappointing as an answer, but I haven't heard the full album. Oh, okay. Yeah, my wife is banging into it. My daughter's really into it. And, you know, I actually DJ, I play house and I play the remix of um, Break My Soul, which went off. And this was just last night in a park. I did a gig in a park and I played the Honey Dujon remix of Break My Soul. It went off. So first of all, I'm excited, you know, whenever Beyonce puts an album because she's always an incredible artist. I don't think I'm going to be disappointed when I hear the album. I'm interested to hear the slant because I, you know, I hear that it's a house album and that's amazing. I love house, you know, house is actually probably the beginnings of so much, um, you know, music. Um, So yeah, I'm excited to see what she did. Yeah. And that's why I asked, because I know that house is, is something that you're particularly uh, drawn to. And I, I'm just curious from a DJ perspective, and maybe one day you'll share on social media or elsewhere, 
is I don't know on this album, if you're a DJ, how you only play one song because it just goes. You know what I'm saying? I was like, I don't know how you do it, but I think that'll be a challenge. Did you like this album? I loved it. I mean, I know a lot of people think it's her best one. Kind of hard for me to get to there because I love four so much. Like that was one of my favorites. And but I realized that when you ever you think about something being the best album, you got to put it in the context of what is musically what's happening today. You look at this album, you look at what Drake put out. I just heard Megan the Stallion's new single, which is everybody's going to house. A little bit. A little bit. Definitely. So before we get to talking about Beast, which I was able to screen, I want to ask you a question that I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? Wow. So can I ask you a question right back? Just define unbothered for me. Okay. So I usually define it this way, is that it doesn't mean you don't care. It means that we all arrive and graduate to a point where we're going to do us regardless, <laughs> that you're comfortable in your own skin. You're not worried about how people think of you. You're not worried about being judged for your decisions. Like you're really just going to do and be you. So I just would love to know when that came for you. There was a moment uh, probably about six years ago and uh, I was training, I kickbox, okay? And I decided that I wanted to fight a professional fight and I had to go through this incredible journey which involved a documentary and involved a year of training, involved get me getting my professional boxing license and fighting in um, this very famous uh, venue in London called York Hall, where all the great boxers and fighters have ever fought. And I remember stepping into that arena, you know, kickboxing, boxing, very dangerous. You know, you walk in, you might not walk out. That's just a plain fact is, you know, you can get damaged. And I was 44 and everyone was like, are you sure about this, bro? Like, and the guy I was fighting, you know, he was like 10, he was experienced, had 10 professional fights. And I just remember sitting in that ring in my corner, looking at that guy and thinking, I really don't care. I made the journey. The journey has been made. It was one of the biggest obstacles of my life because I was like, you know, I'm not supposed to be doing this, but I made it. I was there and I was about to go into the ring and I just felt to myself, that's it. I don't care what people think of me at this junction because if I go down, it doesn't matter. I made it here. And that was definitely a big shift in everything. I won the fight, came out of there with such like a feeling of triumph Win, lose, whatever, I still would have had that feeling of triumph, but to win was incredible. And it shifted my, shifted my thinking. You know, not to give too much away about Beast, but let's just say you take some licks in this one. <laughs> yeah. The lion is kind of no joke. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> my carriage is no hero. Let's put it that way. No, not in the, in the way that I think maybe some people might be perceiving how this movie is. You have worked a lot with Will Packer, and this is another collaboration that you all have. Because uh, I love Will Packer's description of it. I think he he said is the the writer of the film um, or executive producer director of the film whose idea was called it Jaws, but with lions. <laughs> so, what was it that drew you to playing this character in this role? There's a combination of things, you know. Look, one, and this is a big one, you know. We, I chose to make this film at a time when we weren't sure whether we cinema was going to be back on its feet. You know, it's kind of trailing out of the pandemic. And, you know, there was talk of this ever getting back into the cinema. You know, I come from the culture of cinema and I wanted to, I wanted to put 
people in the cinema. How do we do that? Well, we make a commercial film and just drive audiences back and make something that's hopefully relatable. In this sense, you know, it's a family man. He's not an action hero. He's not a tough guy. You know, this is a father that's doting his ex-wife and goes, goes to Africa with his two daughters to go and mourn her. And it all goes wrong from there. And I just wanted to play something that was relatable, but at the same time had that thrill, had that, let's get back to the cinema, you know, feeling. Will Pack is always a draw for me. Like whenever he calls me and says, look, I want to do something, I always examine that. But in this film, it was about, this is survival. You know what I mean? Like, it's interesting. It's an African-American family in the heart of a survival movie. You don't see that very often because people would be like, what are you doing out there anyway? Get your ass home, whatever that is, right? So for me, that was it was the family dynamic. It was the survival dynamic. This is something that we may not have seen before. I know that, you know, the poster looks like I might be the beast. My character might be the beast, but he is not. He's a man that's just like, I will do anything to fight for my daughters. And he does. And, you know, I think there are some people that might feel a little anticlimactic because, you know, this is guys, he's meant to be this macho fighting guy. And he's not, you know what I'm saying? He just does what he has to do. So that was the appeal to me. It's kind of like all those ingredients, you know, stuck into one box and hopefully take the audience on a, on a journey. You know, as I said, Will described it as Jaws, but with lions. And I was thinking like, this is daddy's little girls, but instead of fighting a baby mama from hell in the Atlanta hood, it's lions in South Africa. <laughs> but I did like the fact that, I mean, your character is somebody who's, you know, not some superhero or not some, you know, that adds to the terror of it. And I wish I would have been able to see it in the theater. I watched it at home. But I guess in a way it was good because I was yelling at your kids this whole damn movie. Like, didn't he tell you to stay in the car? <laughs> that's the, you know, that's what happened at the theater when we went to the premiere. People were screaming at the screen like mad. Like, oh, there she go. One person came up to me. He was like, yo, man, why you kept leaving your doors? Why'd you keep leaving them? I was like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What else was I supposed to do? He's like, no, man, you, you got to stay there. You don't know how to shoot a gun. I'm like, no, man. I'm <laughs> having this discussion with this guy. That is funny. Um, what is your most memorable encounter with an animal? <laughs> a gorilla. I went to Rwanda. I was making a film in Rwanda. And we had the privilege of going up to the top of the mountain and, you know, just observing the gorillas. And I never forget the, the sort of ranger guy that was leading us. He was like, look, man, there are some rules here. You know, gorillas don't play humans. They will just snap your neck in a heartbeat if they feel you're encroaching. So you just have to be very respectful no matter what happens. And he talked us through the body language. If a, if a gorilla comes up to you, you have to bow down and no eye contact and just make yourself as small as possible. And we rolled all the way up this mountain, up there, and boom, just like we all crouched down and there was all these gorillas. And there was this one baby gorilla that was just sort of really curious about us. And he was coming towards us. And the ranger was like, oh, no, 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 no. Everyone just stay down, stayed. And as he was saying that, I just saw like these leaves rumbling away. And this silverback gorilla came charging, whoom, past the baby, knocked the baby out and just stood right in front of the ranger. And this was like, ah! Banging his chest, 
I've never seen anything like that in my life. If you just imagine the biggest football player you've ever seen, but twice, okay? And then just the head was huge. And when it roared, like I could just feel the heat of his breath because it was literally there. And he just was like, hum, 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 hum. and the ranger was like, cool. He was talking to it. The guy was talking to it because he knew. He was like, okay, come on. I'm not okay. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I'm just We're going to leave you alone. And the guy and Silverback just walked away. So at what point did you shit your pants? Just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> just, just wondering. When I saw the, the leaves moving, you know, like they're doing, doing a movie and it's like, oh, something's coming. I was like, hmm, this is going to be bad. <laughs> wow, that sounds pretty terrifying. Well, you have a lot of projects that are coming out over the course of the next year, one of which I know a lot of people are also excited about, and that is Luther being a feature film. Considering where this show started, and you know, I know it eventually came to an end, but the evolution of the character itself, what does it mean to you that Luther is not going to be a feature film? It's incredible, man. It's like graduating. You know, like the television show ran a natural course, right? We did five seasons in it, and, and each one of them shape-shifted, but kept an audience captivated for 10 years. And the graduation point is where we get to take that Luther character and elevate it onto the big screen with a slightly wider spectrum of scale, stories we can tell, maybe even take it international in terms of what who Luther is. It's a huge achievement for all of us that have written it. And also what I'm happy about is that I saw the film, we, we shot the film, and if you've never seen an episode of Luther, you can still be invited into the first chapter of the film series. I'm hoping that this movie becomes literally my Bond. Everyone talks about Bond, but for me, it's Luther. Are you sick of being asked about James Bond? I mean, it's, you know, I have no more answers for it. I just tell people, ah, oh, don't ask me that. Because a lot of times it's, it's really lazy journalism and... People try and use it as clickbait, you know what I mean? Like, oh, what's he going to say this time? I, tr I try to say the same things. Every now and again, I just tease them. But every now and again, I'll give them some philosophy about why I don't want to do it or why it's not. It's just a rumor. But most times now, I tend not to talk about it. Mm. Um, I got that impression from seeing some other uh, interviews that you've done. You've done so much acting. I mean, you have well over 100 movie credits. You're producing, you know, I know you and your daughter have a production company. You got all this stuff going on. And yet you've hinted in previous interviews that you don't know how much longer you're going to be actually acting. I mean, how often do you think about maybe not being in front of the camera so much? More and more. I think about that a lot. Um, I love acting, but I, I, I feel that there's a lot more to offer as a director, as a writer, perhaps, and a producer. I think there's, I've tried not to repeat myself as an actor, you know? There's only one Stringer Bell character. There's only one Luther character. There's only one Beast of No Nation character, you know? I, I try not to repeat. And I feel like there are characters and roles that I haven't done yet. And I feel I want to still do those. But the truth is, I'd like to maybe do that as an offering as a film director, actor. You know, there were some incredible people like John Favreau, Denzel, who have acted and directed, you know, and, and directed themselves in movies. And I feel that's a natural progression for an actor. Turns out, you know, it's 30 years I've been in the game already. I still feel like, you know, it's yesterday for me. So 
you know, I, I, I love acting. Don't get me wrong. I want people to know that. But there are other things I like to do, for sure. Mm. Uh, would you like to, I mean, you're already pretty deeply involved in music, but would you like to get even more deeply involved? Yeah, I've been making moves towards that. You know, I produce and I've always had a studio, right? So I was kind of self-taught producer, you know. I sing a little bit, but I'm no Jamie Foxx, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I like poetry and rap. And so I feel like there's an offering for me in the form of an album. I've put up music before and varied types of music, but I definitely feel like there's an outlet for me. You know, when I'm writing and it comes to music, I feel a lot more sort of like free and liberty to say what I want to say. As an actor, you know, especially in these days, days and age, you know, people's everyone's scared of being cancelled or oversharing, you know what I'm saying? And I find it annoying when, you know, a journalist will ask you a question trying to get you to say something controversial. And that's annoying to me. But in music, I'll say what I like. You know what I mean? If I have an opinion, I'll say it via my music and not feel worried about it. It's a different part of me, you know? It's kind of like, you make your music, you're in control of it. It's your narrative. You're filming it's someone else's narrative, someone else's words. So I feel like, you know, as I grow as an artist, a bit more, you know, sort of focused, less focused on one thing, the music feels like a good uh, lane for me. I guess one of the, the, the other lanes you have jumped into is uh, podcasting, because you and your wife have a podcast, Coupledom, which I think is amazing. And the fact that you guys focus on duos or duets, you know, people who are partners in, in some form of way, be it business, relationship or whatever. What's it like working together? You know, it's interesting working with Sabrina. She, you know, doesn't have a background in media and space. You know, that's not her background. So she's incredibly like versatile. You know what I mean? Like it's fascinating to watch her when she's on her in the podcast mode or when we're, you know, talking about our skincare, she's talking to journalists. She's really good at it. She's incredible at it. She has a great voice too. Working together is interesting because, you know, for me, I, I do interviews. I, I can talk quite naturally in an interview situation. I can see where Sabrina definitely has sort of thought about what she's about to say and making sure it sounds perfect where I'm a lot more like, ah, she'll be like, oh, maybe we should um, do the research before the interview. I'm like, ah. And she's like, what? And she, you know, for her, and it's not like I'm being cocky or anything. It's just that my natural inquisitive self, I feel like I steer the direction of the conversation and get some of the info. But with her, she's very much sort of studied. It's great because it's yin and yang, you know, and there's a little balance there. But, you know, Sabrina's really hardworking. That's one thing I'll say about her and, it's been good. It's been good. I, I mean, I enjoy the podcast. Well, you and I got uh, married seven months apart because you got married in 2019 as well, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. You see, you better get that right. Okay. <laughs> you better get that right. You told me. 20, yes. All right. <laughs> it's 2019. So I, you know, with this pandemic and everything, that's put for a lot of people a very um, interesting layer on sort of new marriages. So what would you say? in these three years that you've learned about yourself in this marriage? You know, I'm an only child, right? And so marriage is, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot about sharing and opening your space for your partner and, you, and vice versa. And, and, you know, that's an adjustment, you know? I've had relationships before, uh, but a marriage is a slightly different thing. I, I, I was married very young in my life. And so it was a very transitional time for me. So I don't think... 
you know, my ex and I experience married life in the way that Sabrina and I are. And uh, it's great. You learn a lot about yourself. You know what I mean? You're constantly shape-shifting. I think, you know, the pandemic, you know, found Sabrina and I, you know, like most people, locked into a space. And you quickly saw more than you would normally usually see. You know what I mean? Because you're now together 12 hours a day or whatever it is, you know, 15 hours a day. So for me, it was a real uh, learning experience, but I think it cemented, you know, our relationship. We're good to spend time apart, but we're also good being together in silence, you know? You said a minute ago that, you know, you really tried in your career not to play the same type of roles like over and over again. Was there ever any thought given to turning the wire into a movie? Like, I always thought it would be dope to do an Avon Stringer prequel. And I don't know if that ever came up or was it because it's such an amazing. It's the, I, I think it's the greatest television show in history. I want you to put the word out there that we back up. Understand me? We back up. That's just me. And so I don't know if you if that ever crossed your mind, crossed your path, if it ever was presented to you. I think at some junction a long time ago, there was talk about what a movie would be if there was one. Would it be a continuation, which would probably not see some of the beloved characters in the way it was? Or would it be a prequel? I don't think anything ever came of those discussions or, you know, thoughts. I don't think David Simon ever really thought about The Wire as a movie. I think people have fantasized about it in many, many ways. And I've had this conversation before. I think that if we should have shot that movie, we should have shot it a while back. And I think that the Stringer, Avon, the sort of that storyline absolutely is the apex for, for most people in the Wire world. Um, so I think it would have been a great, film if they had thought about it but i don't think it ever really materialized beyond just conversations about it. it it was a few years ago i think it was six years ago you spoke before parliament about the lack of diversity in movies and in television i'm here to talk about diversity okay diversity in the modern world is more than just a skin color it's a gender age disability sexual orientation social background and most of most importantly, in my opinion, it's diversity of thought. Because if you're given genuine diversity of thought amongst, if, sorry, I beg your pardon, if, the, uh, if you have genuine diversity of thought among people that make television and film, then you accidentally won't shut out some of the groups I just mentioned just now. And now that you're on the content side of it, producing content, you obviously get to experience this in an even deeper way than you were six years ago. So in your mind, what is the landscape like today? You know, because you addressed a lot of issues before Parliament. What does it look like now versus what it looked like then? Right now, it has become, in many cases, policy. And that was partly the goal. It's like, we have to find a way to make corporations, filmmakers, producers, casting directors to think about diversity, without it being like, you know, shoehorned in or forced upon, but think about it as part of the policy of making any film, TV, show, any storytelling. Let's think about diversity, which is, as a buzzword, has shifted into inclusion because, you know, it's, it's a wider net. At one junction, you know, people were just wanting to see black and brown people on TV, but now we want to see 
everybody on TV. You know, we want to see a, a slice of our culture on the screens that we're watching. And I think it's healthy. I think that, like I said, a lot of companies have adopted a policy which tackles diversity. I believe there's still a ways to go because, you know, the truth is until we are still the owners of our own platforms, distribution networks, we're still sort of waiting for the handouts. You know, how can I get? And it's great. Like, for example, Will Packer is an incredible independent Black filmmaker and has found a, a complete ecosystem to make films for the community he's from, but also beyond that. And that's the area that we need to see more diversity in now, because it can't just be one Will Packer. We have to see a few more. We want to see more Ava DuVernay's as well, you know. But there's, in that space of story makers and producers, the diversity conversation is still shallow, still narrow. But I'm really optimistic from where, you know, I stood in Parliament talking about, hey, to where we are, there has been a shift in that space. Well, just before I get you out of here, I want to play a game with you that I play with every single guest that appears on this podcast. And it's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. It's very simple. I give you two choices and you have to pick one. I know you love these types of things. I know you do. It's like a setup. I mean, it is. This is quite honestly where the controversy happens. Oh, <laughs> okay. no shit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just so you know. All right. Uh, which would you rather win, a Grammy or an Oscar? Grammy. Mm. Does it bother you at all that you haven't been nominated despite the expansiveness of your acting resume? No, it doesn't. Either way, Grammy or Oscar, I never really considered that my art can be sort of like trophied. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's, it's great to be recognized. And I've won a Golden Globe and nominated for an Emmy. And it's very exciting. But it's not a goal for me. So I'm excited for those that have had it. But I, I'm not like over here like, oh, they haven't nominated me. It's, no. What was more cold-blooded, Stringer Bell killing D'Angelo and keeping it hidden from the Barksdale family or Stringer Bell sleeping with D'Angelo's baby mama? Sleeping with the baby mama was, was real cold. See, I have this argument with people all the time. I was like, the baby mama move, that was out cold. That was out cold. That was a little dark. Okay. And finally, Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come or Marvin Gaye's Mercy, Mercy Me. That's a difficult one because both those songs and artists mean a lot to me. So I'm going to say Sam Cooke and I'll tell you a quick story. When I was, uh, my dad worked for Ford Motor Company and uh, when I left school in the two years before you know, I decided I wanted to be an actor and I was at college. He said, I got you a job at Ford's. And I was like, that's not really my style, but I couldn't say no. My dad worked there for 30 years and I, I needed the money. So I worked there. And every night when I was on the night shift, I would listen to Sam Cooke religiously, like just Sam Cooke, because that song was like, because listen, you know, <laughs> in Ford's, it was like, you know, this factory job. It was hard labor. It was like a chain gang. There's no doubt. And so something about Sam Cooke just kept me, uh, my spirits up and kept me dreaming about what I wanted to do. And one day I had to go into my dad's office and say, dad, I'm leaving tomorrow because I'm going to go be an actor. And he was like, took off his gloves, had these big overall gloves, shook my hand and said, I'm very proud of you. You did it. Two years of working 
here and you're still going on to your dream. So um, a change is going to come, Sam Cook, for me. No controversy, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you survived. Um, and I'm very familiar with Ford. I'm from Detroit. So we're the Motor City. So obviously, I have a long list of relatives that work for the auto industry, for sure. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining me. Good luck on everything that you have coming on in the future. And I can't wait to get your full critique of Renaissance because uh, I'm real curious as to what you would think about it. <laughs> Anytime. All right. Do you ever have guests back on Unbothered? All the time. And open door. Hello. Okay. <laughs> you can come back right. anytime. But this is the time we had to catch you. All right. <laughs> and listen, out of the 7,000 interviews that I had, you're in the top five. I'm just going to put that out there for you. Well, my job here is done. <laughs> Thank you, Idris. Good luck. Good to see you. Bye. So I was too embarrassed to tell the story to Idris Elba directly, but I got a story to tell about that time Idris Elba and I dated. Well, sort of. Back in my former job as an ESPN television personality, I used to joke on air that Idris Elba and I had been dating for two years in my mind. This was, of course, before I met my husband, or at least I think it was, because I'm pretty sure if that weren't the case, he probably would have had a conversation with me about it. Anyway, I also joked about it on Twitter once. When someone asked me who I was dating, it was just a smart-ass comeback to get people up out of my business. It was all jokes, all fun and games, until somebody took it seriously. Now, I am not ashamed to admit that I have myself on Google Alert. Because I do want to know what people are writing about me because it's my life. And I want to make sure that people are capturing it accurately. The context of my life or how it's perceived by those that write about me, I don't have any control over that. But shit, at least get the facts straight. So whenever my name appears in a story, I get an alert. So imagine my reaction when a headline popped up on my Google alert that read, Jamel Hill dating Idris Elba. I was stunned because some gossip blog actually took what was clearly a joke, literally. My friends thought it was hilarious. And one of them, my manager and business partner, Evan, even went so far as to get me a framed signed photo of Idris Elba for my birthday one year. It'd be your own people every single time. But this all taught me a very important lesson. Be careful who you joke about, because one day they may wind up being the guest on your season four premiere episode. Coming up next, fuck it, I'm bothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. We're two months out from midterm elections and evidence is abound that far too many people do not understand just how critical it is to vote in these midterms. Because for months, experts have been predicting that Democrats will lose the House and the Senate. And considering how Republicans have embraced extremism, racism, fascism, I, for one, am not signing up for that particular horror movie. 
And knowing what an uphill battle it will be for Democrats to maintain the majority in both these two houses, fucking I'm bothered by this persistent narrative that President Joe Biden hasn't done anything worth rallying around for November's critical election. Let me be crystal fucking clear. I am no Joe Biden stand. I did not vote for him in the primary. He was not my first, second, or even fourth choice for president. I thought the country needed a bolder, younger, more progressive voice. But once it got down to him and Trump, I fell in line because I was not going to sign up for four more years of a bigoted, incompetent, traitorous, childish buffoon. Donald Trump could have been running against an air mattress and I was voting for the air mattress. Joe Biden has certainly made his share of mistakes as president. He, like so many Democrats, are still in love with this fallacy that bipartisanship exists. He doesn't seem to realize that the Republican Party has essentially become a terrorist organization, radicalizing and weaponizing its base using lies, distortion, and imaginary racial grievances to stay in power and further entrench white supremacy. So when I saw that Biden's approval rating is 40%, I thought about how narrative and perception are so dangerous when it comes to judging what a president is actually doing. As of the taping of this podcast, Biden is 575 days into his presidency. And I compared where his approval rating stood versus other presidents. Biden's 40.3% approval rating at this juncture in his presidency is lower than the last six presidents, which includes Donald Trump. Recently, the Shade Room posted a story about how Biden is canceling $3.9 billion in student debt for 208,000 borrowers who were defrauded by ITT Tech. I took a look at some of the comments and the number of people who shitted on Biden taking this course of action was astounding, though not surprising. There was a lot of who gives a fuck and clowning people who went to ITT Tech and when is Biden going to forgive all student loans? And perhaps what some of those people commenting didn't realize is that minorities make up 70% of ITT Tech's student body and the majority of those students are black. I have repeatedly heard and read on social media that refrain. Joe Biden ain't doing shit for black people. And while I think criticism of any president is healthy and often deserved, at least make the criticisms rooted in facts and not in feelings. Whatever issues you have with Biden, that man has had a hell of a month. Biden just signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, in which we finally address climate change to the tune of giving people a 30% tax credit for being more energy efficient. People will be able to get massive rebates, some as high as $14,000 for buying heat pumps or energy efficient home appliances. You can get up to $7,500 if you buy an electric vehicle or $4,000 for a used one. Under this act, if you're on Medicare, your insulin payments will be limited to $35 a month. And I don't need to tell you what group of people are disproportionately impacted by diabetes. 
There's a lot of really good stuff in this bill, which for Joe Biden, this is a legacy bill for his presidency. But his recent accomplishments go beyond this legislation. A few weeks ago, Attorney General Merrick Garland, a Joe Biden appointee, that the government was filing civil rights charges against four police officers involved in the murder of Breonna Taylor, giving fresh hope that she will finally get the justice she has deserved after the feats don't fail me now, Attorney General Daniel Cameron refused to even lift a finger to see these officers held accountable for Taylor's death. One of the officers, Kelly Goodlett, already has pled guilty to a charge of conspiracy for filing a report to help cover up the faulty search warrant that put Taylor's unjustified death in motion. I could list other accomplishments like Joe Biden already forgiving $32 billion in student debt and putting student loan payments on pause the last two years, but I don't want this to sound like an infomercial. The he hasn't done shit for black people narrative isn't just untrue. It's also extremely dangerous because this is the type of narrative that discourages us from voting and convinces us that we shouldn't engage in politics, even though it impacts every part of our lives. The truth is that too many of us are uninformed about how government actually works and too many of us don't stay engaged. I saw someone on social media complaining that Biden didn't pass the John Lewis Voting Act or the George Floyd Policing Act. One big problem with that, the president doesn't pass bills. He signs them. Bills have to be passed by the House and then the Senate before the president can sign it. And both those bills died in Congress because they had no Republican support. Shocking. With the George Floyd legislation, Representative Karen Bass and Senators Tim Scott and Cory Booker, all of whom are black, were working together to create a bill that Republicans and Democrats could live with. But Scott, a Republican senator from South Carolina, torpedoed the progress with bad faith negotiations. Republicans are pro-police and they take a shit ton of police money. They had no legitimate interest in seeing any kind of police reform. But Biden and the Democrats got the blame. And what no one has failed to mention is that Biden used his executive power to enact some measure of police accountability. It requires federal law enforcement agencies to report police misconduct and use of force incidents to a national law enforcement accountability database. This order also severely limits no-knock warrants and restricts any federal law enforcement agencies from transferring or selling any military-style equipment. Now, there are other measures in this order, and for my taste, no, it doesn't go far enough. And while I'm not encouraging us to settle for scraps, we have to be realistic. The majority of Black people were not on board with defunding the police, and the majority actually want increased police presence in our neighborhoods. It is what it is. To get anything accomplished, we need political power, period. The way we get that power is through voting in every election, from school board to president of the United States, holding elected officials accountable, and supporting candidates whose words and actions line up for what benefits our community. That whole holding our vote for ransom shit is dumb. All it does is guarantee that we're left out of the political equation. Nobody is inviting anybody to the table who doesn't vote. 
So we have to be more vigilant about separating narrative from reality and emotions from fact. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.